encourage you to open one of those pew Bibles, and uh, I'll give you a shortcut. You'll find Romans chapter 1 on page 997. And as you're turning there, getting ready for our time together, I want to give you a real quick update uh, on our youth pastor, Mike McGarry, this past week uh, was in England uh, speaking at a conference for youth pastors from all over the UK. An incredible opportunity, an incredible ministry, incredible conference, and he tested positive for COVID yesterday. And he was supposed to be flying home today. So his symptoms are extremely mild. He said he would be watching online. Cheerio, Mike. Good to see you. <laughs> He is, uh, he's staying with the host family there. They're taking good care of him. His flight has been rescheduled for Thursday. He has to test negative before he can get on that flight to come home. Our biggest concern is not his health. It's what prolonged exposure to British culture could possibly do to him. <laughs> so if he comes home sp speaking of the metric system or calling cookies biscuits, something crazy like that, we're going to have an intervention. I'll let you know. Um, but I do want us to pray uh, for Mike and pray for his wife, Tracy, and their kids. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for Mike McGarry, for his place in our church, for his ministry here. He gives all of himself to our church, to our families. We're grateful for a man who works the way he does, grateful for a man with the character that he possesses, truly the character of Christ in him. Uh, Father, thank you for the platform you've given him to be a blessing and a, a, a catalyst for great ministry to youth pastors across our nation, even across our world. Thank you for the opportunity you gave him this week to invest in the lives of so many other youth pastors. Uh, you've done a good thing in him, and you continue to do that. We praise you for this. Lord, help him in his downtime to rest well. Our prayer is that his symptoms will remain super mild and that when it comes time to test again later this week, uh, that he would be clear and be able to get home just as soon as possible. Thank you for the family that's caring for them. Lord, be a blessing to them and encourage them uh, in their time with Mike. And we pray for Tracy and Matthew and Hannah that you would help them in all the juggling of life that's going on in the days ahead. Lord, we love you for your every kindness to us, for your healing hand, for your presence with us, for your knowledge of all that's to come that gives us confidence to walk the days ahead. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Romans chapter 1 is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Sociology, it's the study of human relationships. And I've learned a few things about human relationships through the years. I kind of feel like I might be a hack sociologist. Here's a few things I've learned about human relationships. When you ask your wife, where do you want to go eat? And she replies, I don't care. She in fact cares very, very much. Never without care when it comes to that question. Another thing I've learned about relationships, if you have four daughters, you will never get a cold shower or a hot shower the rest of your life. Never, ever again say goodbye to it. If I'm in the drive-through lane and the person in front of me out of the kindness of their heart, pays for my order. I'm going to take that kindness and run with it. I'm not paying for the Joe behind me. I, they meant that for me. I'm gonna, and inevitably, the person behind me has ordered $80 worth of French fries or something like that. And I'm not about that life. I'll take that kindness. I'll pay it forward at another date somewhere down the road. And finally, very important, if you ask someone's opinion 
about, say, something you're wearing, and they respond high-pitched, it means they are lying. <laughs> hey, what do you think about my shirt? It's great! What a nice shirt! That's so you! Mm, you know what that means. Yeah, time for a new shirt. That's what that means. Look, uh, relationships can be tricky. And relationships are of vital importance for all people, but especially, especially for people of faith. Not just having relationships, but really who we are in relationship is what is vitally important. For followers of Jesus, every relationship in our lives is marked, impacted by the gospel message. And Paul makes this abundantly clear in the passage we're going to be studying this morning. We began our study in the book of Romans last week. We're going to be in it for the majority of 2022. Uh, And last week, Paul opens the letter with this incredible greeting that makes clear why we as the readers should embrace the message of the gospel. His next words following that greeting, the passage we're studying today, focuses on how the gospel impacts our relationships both inside the church and outside the church. He's going to tell us this morning that our relationships with one another as a church, localized, South Shore Baptist Church, our relationships look like, are shaped by the gospel message. And not only that, but our posture towards those outside the church, outside the faith, our posture towards them, our relationship with them is also impacted by the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Now, the things that Paul discusses in this passage are not novel, especially for those of us who have been in the church and in the faith for some time. This is not new ground we're uncovering. But understand this, if we get this wrong, the results are catastrophic. There is nothing more hellish than a church at war with itself. And there's nothing more devastating than a church at war with the world. That's not the way of Christ. And so Paul shows us this morning in very clear language the impact the gospel message has on the relationships in our lives. And my goal today is to explain with great clarity just what it means for us to be people who are owned by the gospel and in relationship with one another. Paul gives us two ways the gospel impacts the relationships in our lives. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Romans chapter 1, verses 8 through 17, and Paul writes this. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you but was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. How does the gospel message impact our relationships? And in this section, Paul begins by helping us understand the impact of the gospel on our relationships with fellow believers. The first is this, the gospel creates a church unified by love. Our relationships inside these walls are changed by the gospel in this way. The gospel creates a church unified by love. In verses 8 through 12, we get a glimpse at Paul's affection for Christians in Rome. Truth be told, in all of Paul's writings, he always articulates a great deal of affection. He cares about the people he's writing to. Now, there's sometimes he'll, you know, take them to the woodshed and have a little talk about Jesus with them. But by and large, even that act, that sort of stern language or corrective language, is rooted in love and affection for the people he's writing to. Uh, and so Paul expresses his care for the Christians in Rome in three ways in what he's written here. First of all, he prays for them. In verses 8 through 10, he says he constantly prays for them. In verse 8, he thanks God for them. In verse 9, he constantly prays for them. In verse 10, he prays that he'll be able to visit them soon. They are always a subject of prayer for Paul. Second way he expresses his care or affection for the church is by his desire to visit them. In verses 10 and 11, he says that one of his prayers is that he'll be able to visit them soon. And you'll remember from last week that one of the reasons he wrote this letter was because he has travel plans to stop off in Rome on his way to Spain. He has Spain in his sights. He wants to go there with the gospel. Rome will be his stopping off point. So he desires to see them. He can't wait to, to meet them face to face. He isn't content to merely pray for them from far away. He wants to see them in the flesh. Third way he expresses his affection for this church is by his desire that they would mutually encourage each other in the faith. That's what he says in verse 12. He wants to visit them so that he can be a blessing to them and they can be a blessing to him. He's not just going to stroll into town and dish out all the blessings and then be on his way. He says, there's benefit for me and my faith by spending time with you. Their faith is to be mutually encouraged by their time together. So Paul prays for them. He wants to see them, and then he wants to encourage their faith as they encourage him. His affection for his fellow believers is undeniable. Although he's never met these people face to face, never been in the places where they worship, it's the common experience of faith in Christ that gives them a union that transcends every possible human barrier. You'll remember from our introduction last week that the church in Rome is made up of a di diverse group of people. For sure, there were people from Roman society, Roman citizens, uh, people who had done well for themselves and were well respected in Roman life. But by and large, the church was made up primarily of poor working class people. There would have been many slaves among them, uh, slaves who are immigrants from other parts of the Roman Empire, either willful immigrants or not. But Paul's affection is not just for the leadership of the church, nor is his affection just for those believers who came from Jewish backgrounds like him, nor is his affection just for those who are Roman citizens like he is, or just for those who are successful. Paul loves his fellow Christians full stop. He loves them because 
He loves Christ, and they love Christ, and Christ loves all of them together. And so since Christ died for all people of all nations, and since he saves everyone who comes to him with faith, then we learn to love our fellow Christians according to the ways of Jesus and not the ways of the world. So vitally important for people of faith that we love each other in the way of Jesus, not according to the ways of the world. The world teaches us that our identity is found primarily in, well, just almost anything you want it to be found in. Your identity can be found in your success. Your identity can be found in your ethnicity. Your identity can be found in your nationality. Your identity can be found primarily in your sexuality. But the gospel teaches us that those who walk with Christ, those who are loved by Him, saved by Him, take His name and our identity is in Him above everything else. That makes one family under the name of Jesus Christ. That makes one church, one body, one loaf, all of us together. And that doesn't deny who we are by other means of identification, but it means first and foremost, if we are in Christ, then we are brothers and sisters in the same faith family. And on this point, there is so much for me to praise South Shore Baptist Church for. We are a beautiful family of faith. We are white, black, Caribbean, Hispanic, Cambodian, Brazilian, Portuguese, Taiwanese, Ugandan, Irish, Italian, Chinese, Haitian, and even Texan. <laughs> we are Hingham and Weymouth and Hull and Cohasset and Situate and Quincy and Braintree and Abington and Rockland and Norwell and Hanover and Bridgewater and Brockton and Plymouth and Duxbury and so many more. We are white collar and blue collar and brown collar and no collar. We are all ages, we are all stations of life, we are every economic bracket, we are single, we are married, we are kids and no kids. And praise God, Christ has made us one family together. The Lord has done this. Now that being said, this is where you do get to push back a bit. And you might say, Cody, that, that all sounds nice in theory, but the reality is that sometimes this place feels cold. Sometimes I feel alone, and sometimes I feel forgotten. You are right. We are not in heaven yet. And we are still striving to become the sort of heavenly community that Christ has saved us to be and is shaping us to be. Sometimes we fail at our relationships. But still, we are to strive. Still, we are to work towards being the kind of faith family that Christ has saved us to be. And becoming that heavenly community doesn't happen by accident. It requires real intentionality, a real commitment from each one of us to each other to see that we live in right relationship as the gospel requires of us. It's one thing to have good manners as a people. It's something different to put the needs of others before your own entirely. What does that kind of intentionality look like? Well, I, I think that's where Paul's example is so helpful for us. You remember the things Paul did in showing his affection for the church in Rome? We should do those same things. First, you should pray for your fellow church members. 
And to do that, you're going to need to know names and needs. Pray with praise the way Paul does for the church in Rome. Pray with praise for the people you worship with, the people of our church. But you need to know their names and know their needs. Generic prayers just aren't going to cut it for a family. God, be with all the sinners. God, be with all the sick people. God, be with all the church. That may come from a place of true sincerity, but we've got to know names. We've got to know needs, and we only know that by time with one another. We've got to make that happen. A second way for you to be intentional in your love to your faith family is by gathering with your church for worship. I'm not going to make a one-to-one comparison between Paul's desire to see the Roman church face-to-face and, and our need to be together. Uh, that's not the same, that's not the teaching point Paul's after here, but there is something here for us to consider and to think about, especially when our gathering has been so fractured over the last couple of years. There are many people from our church family who are worshiping from home right now, and the reasons for that are many. Many people are sick or are getting over sickness. And so we are glad that those people are home keeping their germs to themselves. That's the way it's always been for us. You got the flu? Go away. You got strep? See you later. You got a sinus infection? Go home. We don't want you and your germs around us. And so your home getting better, praise God, your intention is to return. Now there are others who are home right now because their health system, their immune systems are, are severely compromised. And so in order to be safe and cautious, that they're home protecting themselves because the implications of getting sick with one sickness could just snowball into some disastrous effects. But still, their desire is to return, to worship again with us face to face. My main concern is for two different groups of people. One would be those who have simply fallen out of the practice of gathering for worship. That's been easy to do over the last couple of years, hasn't it? I mean, I have to be here, but for so many other people. Look, it's easy to, to just miss one Sunday and then five Sundays and then five months of Sundays. It just happens. And I don't know, maybe you'll hear this message online. And so I just, I want you to hear this. An online worship service is not a church service. It is a temporary tool. It's meant for those who are sick or those who are homebound. And and it's been fruitful ministry for those groups, and we praise God for this resource. But South Shore Baptist Church does not have a digital campus. This is our church. This is our family. This is our room. We miss you, and we want you here. And, And another group I'm so very concerned for are those who are letting fear keep them away. There are times when wisdom and fear can be good partners together. There's a reason I don't skydive. Wisdom and fear keep me from that. But there are other times when fear trumps wisdom. There are times when our fears actually cripple our faith and our lives. So I want to encourage you, if that's you at home, I want to encourage you to take your fears before the throne of our Lord. Voice them. Deal with them. Seek the wisdom and the counsel of trusted brothers and sisters because our lives are not meant to be ruled and dictated by fear. 
And this is where it's so vitally important for us that we keep in contact with our church family, that we call and we email and we check in. We pray together and we read the Bible together and we sing together and we care for one another until we see each other face to face again. The responsibility is not solely on those who are away to come back. It is on those who are here to reach out and to embrace. We've got to be for each other. The gospel requires it. Pray for each other. Worship together. Third, Paul showed his affection for the church by being a mutual blessing to their faith. And it's an incredible reward whenever you get to invest in the faith of another. And what an incredible reward when someone else invests in your own faith. Those are the types of relationships impacted by the gospel that yield fruit after fruit after fruit where this place takes on the appearance and the atmosphere of Christ. That's what God's people are to be about. So with every conversation you have and with every name you learn and with every meal you prepare and every tear you share and every laugh you enjoy with another, you're enjoying the fruit of the gospel. It is a church filled with people who love each other in the way of Christ. So how does the gospel impact our relationships in the church? Well, it creates a church that is unified in love for one another. The second way it impacts our relationships is the gospel creates a church unified in mission. It creates a church unified in mission. This articulates our posture towards those who are outside the faith, outside the church. The gospel has something to say about how God's people connect with the world outside of us. And so in verses 13 to 17, Paul shifts his attention from his affection for the church to his passion for those who are outside the church. In verse 13, he's still talking about visiting Rome, but he begins to also describe his ministry to Gentiles. So look what he says in verse 13. He, he wants to visit the church in Rome in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I'm obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So what does Paul mean there in verse 14 when he says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and to barbarians? Well, by Greek, he's not referring to people from Greece, but rather he's referring to people who belong to a certain sort of cultural setting. Uh, his obligation is to those who in Roman culture have, have these Greek practices. It's a Greco-Roman culture. But in that culture, they are the privileged of society, they are the power brokers, they are the shop owners, they may be slave owners, they are those outside the faith who are well-respected and elevated in Roman society. Contrast that with barbarians. Who are the barbarians? Well, if Greeks represent those who are high in Roman culture and society, barbarians represent those who are not. It would be those who are at the bottom of the social caste. They, in Roman culture, would be the slaves. They would be the, the, the people who own nothing, who owe everything. They are the people who are forgotten about, the people who are left behind. In Roman culture, it was commonly thought and practiced from the highest levels of philosophy that those who were slaves were made that way by design of the gods that they were of inferior intellect, so they couldn't intermingle in normal Roman society, and also they're physically made for the hard labor that's put upon them. And so no one in their right mind would say, I'm obligated to barbarians. 
So when Paul says that, you and I, we just read it. We've read it a thousand times over the course of our lives. But Paul states this in the original audience in Rome. There were barbarians in the church hearing this message. And there were those who were Greeks in the church hearing this message. No one owed barbarians anything. It's a stunning admission by Paul. Paul's obligated to Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish. What is his obligation to them? Well, his, his obligation is to condemn them for their anti-Christ living, right? I just want to make sure you're awake. No. His obligation is to cozy up with power brokers and make a better life for his kids. Is that what his obligation is? No, that's not it either. Paul's obligation, according to verse 15, is to give them the gospel. Why? Verse 16. Look at it with your own eyes in your Bible. Look at it with me. Verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. I want you to commit this verse to memory if you haven't already. Seriously, I want you to come in here next Sunday. Before you can park, you've got to cite this verse <laughs> from memory in the parking lot. I want you, not really, I want you to commit this to memory. I want you to know this by heart. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. This verse is what many people call the thesis statement of the book of Romans. Paul's going to spend the rest of this letter expanding on this one verse. He's going to describe in detail what the gospel is and what its impact is on our lives. Paul isn't ashamed of the gospel. He's proud of the gospel message. Some people in Paul's day thought the gospel message was foolishness. For other people, it was a stumbling block. And as it was in the days of Paul, so it is in modern times as well. The gospel has not lost its offensiveness to those who are outside the faith. It's not hard for you to find people who will like some aspects of what the gospel has to say and then detest other aspects of the gospel message. If we begin to speak about the sinfulness of all people, you lose right there. If you begin to speak of the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, automatically you are considered to be loony. But that's what happens when you speak a message of hope against powers of darkness in an effort to free souls from bondage. And so you've got two options when it comes to the gospel message. We can either capitulate on it, we can change it, we can make it more palatable for the masses, or we just embrace the shame. And that's what salvation requires. Our mission requires us to embrace the shame of the gospel with gladness because the lives of the people who are hearing the gospel are worth it. So what you get called a name? So what you lose something? Who cares? The human soul is worth every shame it takes to get the gospel in their hearts. Paul says the gospel is salvation for everyone who believes first to the Jew and also to the Greek. What does that phrase mean? Well, it reflects a historical reality. God chose the nation of Israel as his people so that they would believe and so that they would be a conduit of faith to the nations. One writer described Israel's role this way. A transformed Israel would help transform the world. Both Jew and non-Jew had the same need, salvation through Jesus. 
So it's not that there's something different for the Jew versus the non-Jew, and Paul's going to get very direct about that in just a couple of chapters. But the need is the same for all of us. The need is for Christ. Paul continues to expand on the gospel in verse 17. He says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. So in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What does that mean? What does it mean that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel? Well, to speak of the righteousness of God, it's not to speak of his holiness. That's another concept. Righteousness and holiness are not the same thing. There might be some places of overlap, but when we speak of God's righteousness, we're speaking of His, his correctness, His rightness. A better word to substitute here would be the word fairness. That in His assessment and judgment of human beings, He is righteous, He is fair in His judgments. And so the gospel message that is meant for all people that saves anyone who comes by faith reveals the fairness of God to all humanity. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, it doesn't, and none of that matters. What matters is, have you heard, have you believed? And here we see the righteousness of God revealed, His fairness in judging human souls. It says the gospel is, or the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith. What does that mean? Well, this phrase is an idiom. It's a figure of speech. And think of it kind of the way we, we sing the line from sea to shining sea. We're just saying all that's encompassed here. The, the song is referring to everything that makes up America, right? So from faith to faith means that uh, all those who have faith in Christ, all those who hear the gospel, put their faith in Christ, they are recipients of God's righteous judgment, his fair judgment on their souls. So wherever God is revealed, wherever faith is expressed, people are rescued, and that's good news. So Paul closes this section with a a quote from the Old Testament, Habakkuk 2.4. He says, for the righteous will live by faith. So Paul's point here is that faith is the way in which one stands right before God. And and the whole Bible is teaching this. Paul isn't just inventing something new for us to think about and consider. He's saying, here's this consistent thread from beginning all the way through. This is the way God has always operated, that those who are considered righteous, those who stand right or correct before God, they do so by faith. And now we know it is by faith in Jesus Christ. I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ and I hear these words, I'm going to start asking some really serious questions of my own soul. Do I stand right before God? And if I say yes, then how? Is it because of my good intentions or because of some things I have accomplished in my life? And there's no doubt you've done good things and you're, you've got people in your life that you are kind and generous to and, and things about you and your choices that are admirable. But right here, we're told the righteous live by faith. You are alive now and forever by faith in Jesus Christ. Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation? It's, it's possible to be a religious person without faith in Christ. Do you know that? It happens all the time. 
we, we grow up in some sort of religious system, a church of some sort, some sort of religious activities, and we think that checks the box as if God is just desperate for my prayer and my worship and my good versus bad, but that's, that's not who he is and that's not how he works. That's, that's like rabbit's foot theology. I do good for God, he'll do good for me. It'll pay off when I need it to. But here's the story of the Bible. It's that God has made you for a relationship with him. And your sin has broken that relationship. You're responsible. Every one of us are at fault for our broken relationship with God because every one of us are sinners. And God who is righteous, God who is fair, would be right if he were just to end it all and be done with it. But God is also a God of love and compassion. And because of that, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh, to take the penalty of your sin on himself. That's why he died on the cross. He died in your place for your sin. And his promise to you is that if you will turn to him, turn from your old life, trust in him, put your faith in him, you'll be saved. You'll be saved from your sin, saved from God's wrath on your sin. You'll have life. You will live by faith. If I knew that today, my whole eternity could change, that this is who Christ is and what his love for me is like, if I knew that was available to me today, I would not leave this room before my eternity was settled. I urge you today to turn to Christ in faith. And so here we are, a church, a family, united with this common mission. Our common mission is this. We are obligated to all people in all places to give them the gospel that will save them. What is our posture to the world outside of these walls? The gospel dictates our posture. For many years now, our nation has been gripped by a rhetoric of division. Many Christians and not too few churches have adopted this divisive rhetoric as a way of approaching others. But it must not be this way for people of faith, for those who follow Jesus Christ. The gospel dictates our posture before the world. Our language to the world has been decided by Christ. We are obligated to the world with a rhetoric of love, with a message of hope. Like Christ who looked out at the masses in Matthew chapter 9 with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. We take his eyes and his heart for the lost and we look at the world around us in all its decay, all of its sinfulness. And we say, Lord, move here and through me. Hear the gospel. Have the gospel. Believe on Christ. That's the posture of a church united in mission around the gospel for the sake of all people. We're obligated to all people, regardless of their political affiliation or their religious views or their stance on gender and sexuality. The human being in front of us, made in the image of God, is worthy of the gospel, and we owe it to them. They are not our enemies. They are the targets of the love of Jesus Christ. Does anything possess the same power to change a human life as the gospel? Is anger as powerful a change agent? Does disgust usher people to the cross? Do we conquer the world by being worldly? Are people drawn to Christ by Christians who are mean or humiliating or condescending? It is the gospel alone that is the power of God for salvation. And for this reason, we owe a gospel debt to all people. Jesus shows us the better way, the powerful way, the saving way, the way for us to exist in a world without him.
So how does the gospel impact our relationships? Well, it gives us a church united in love to one another and also a church united in mission to engage the world with the gospel of Christ. Pretty simple. This is not new ground we've uncovered today. If you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've heard this. You know this. You could have preached this same sermon and done it better than me. Loving each other and sharing the gospel with those outside the faith are basic ideas. This is Christianity 101. So how's it going for you? How are you loving your brothers and sisters in the faith? What's the evidence that you believe this to the point of practicing it, to uniting yourself in heart and mind with the people you worship with? Who's the person that you're caring for in this church? Who's the latest name you've learned? Who's the person who you've crossed three town borders to eat at their dinner table? Who's the new relationship you're working on? Who do you have coffee planned with? Who, who haven't you seen in a while that you're going to reach out to today? Th- this is not stuff that can just live in sort of this theological, conceptual place. It, it has to be lived in practice. And how's your gospel witness going? Whose salvation are you praying for? Who are you sharing the gospel with? Do the non-Christians in your life know you're a Christian? And how do they know? Do they know because of your fight or do they know because of your love? The gospel changes dramatically the way we interact with every person around us. Many years ago, I heard the testimony of an Ethiopian Christian pastor, Pastor Gatana. Ethiopia was a communist country in the 70s and Pastor Gatana survived a genocide known as the Red Terror. And during that time, it was incredibly dangerous to be a Christian in Ethiopia. But still, the church met in secret. Pastor Gatana met and worshipped in secret with as many churches as he could, shared the gospel in secret as often as he could. And he told the story of one time when he met with some new believers in the middle of the night in secret to baptize them. They were new converts. And so they met in secret in this, at, at a river in this quiet place, and he baptized them. And as they stood there in the water still, uh, communist soldiers showed up on the riverbank with their gone, guns drawn. Someone had outed them. The soldiers pointed their guns at the people in the water and demanded that the new Christians recant their faith And every single one of them verbalized their refusal to recant and their allegiance to Christ, and they were executed on the spot. But Pastor Gatano was not. Because he was a known leader, he was taken prisoner, and he was tortured dramatically without mercy by his captors. He described reaching his breaking point uh, when they began to pour boiling oil over the soles of his feet. And he said... This was the culmination of all the abuse, all the torture, and and he was ready to die, ready to go to heaven. And so he prayed in that moment that God would take his life. And in his testimony, he says that God spoke this to him in his heart, that God said, I will not take you yet. I love these people too. 
And he believed what he heard. And he found new boldness, even in his suffering, to share the gospel with his captors. The gospel is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Do you believe that? Then as the Father has loved the Son, let us love each other and love the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love to us. Here's how we know your love. You sent your son to die for us while we were still sinners. We didn't ask or plead or seek it out. We didn't ask you to make a way for us, dead in our sin, content in our rebellion. You loved us. We can barely make sense of that love. But I'm grateful that you have grateful that you have rescued us from sin and death and grateful that you are making us a new people, your people. And so, Lord, in our church here in South Shore Baptist Church, make us a a heavenly community. Make us people who love one another well, who don't come as spectators seeking services to be rendered, but rather come as family looking to connect and to support, to help one another, to encourage one another in the faith. And Lord, give us a gospel-shaped posture towards the world outside. Though sin is detestable and infuriating and horrible, Lord, let us have the heart and mind of Christ for those who are caught in sin and in need of the gospel message. Give us boldness in our witness. Give us frequency in the way we leverage relationships and conversations to the cross. And Lord, we trust your faithfulness to your word that those who hear will believe and those who believe will be saved and you'll be glorified. Father, let there be no question about our love for one another and our love for the lost and let the gospel guide us all the way. It's in Jesus' name we pray.